Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. S.I. Emery was not only known for his excellent teaching and preaching, but he was also known for his fervent prayer life. In 1977, he received the crown of life that was awaiting him after years of faithful ministry. But his preaching lives on today. I know you're going to enjoy this message that he titles, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. Keep passing it on and on. Father in heaven, we dare not enter into thy word without thy help. And we ask that today thou wouldst clear every mind and warm every heart. And may the word of God be more than just printer's ink on paper, but may it be alive, the living word of the eternal God. And may our fellowship together around thy word be for our good and for thy glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I've been thinking quite a little about this camp meeting, and but if I become stale, the word of God does not, and if it does, it's our fault. It uh, is living life-giving coming out of it if we approach it as we should. I have a sort of an outline in my mind for the entire camp, which is often the case, and that I would like to approach God's Word with something overall in what I would want to have to say to you. I have been interested for several years in a little line that I sometimes call the people, the land, and the book. Now there's one people on this earth that are called God's people. We, you say, that's us. Well, if you have met the conditions and the requirements, yes. But the people that are God's people are are the Israelitish people. There are many things said about them. Now, we become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise in and through Jesus Christ. Galatians, I think it is, tells us that if as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, 
And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But in our natural state, we are spoken of as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And as I have thought about the program in my own mind, we could start in the third chapter of Ephesians. I don't know whether you have ever noted the language that is there, but I'd uh, call it to your attention this morning. The Ephesian letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison at Rome. It's one of what we call the prison epistles. And uh, reading in this, I would uh, begin at verse 8. Well, let's begin at verse 7, chapter 3 of the Ephesian letter. Paul, speaking of himself, he said, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, when less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I pause to say that uh, the greatest message I have ever listened to in my life was preached by Seth Seeris from that text, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. I have heard some great preachers back through the years, but Seth Reese was to me the peer of pulpiteers. And I could not describe that meeting, but it seemed to me the atmosphere was pregnant with the power of God until I wouldn't have been surprised to have seen the roof go right off in that church. Uh, and I, I'm not exaggerating there, just seeing everything was pregnant with the power of God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. But that's what Paul was to preach among the Gentiles, uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and I'm reading now, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. What is this mystery that was hid in God? who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent, here we have, to the intent that now, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but now, <clears throat> unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God, according, here's your measuring line, according 
to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll pause there. That I'll stop there. That uh, I want us to get hold of. God has never been without a purpose. When you talk about eternal things, no man is capable of comprehending eternity. In fact, we know so little about the world around us that it ill behooves us to claim what we ought not to claim. I do not know what time is. I do not know whether I flow through time or time flows past me. I do not know what space is. You take a thimble full of space out of one room, put it in another, does it change anything? I don't know. Time and space are two things the philosopher does not know. He just tries to define it. Someone has said that time is that that exists between two events. Space is that that exists between two objects. But when you've said all of that, you haven't told us anything. I don't know what time is or space. I know it's an accommodation for me. I do not know what eternity is. It's one of those absolute words for which man has no definition. You cannot define eternity. We talk about spending eternity. Eternity will still be there when you've spent it all. Eternity. That absolute word for which man has no definition. It takes two everlastings to make one eternity. From me and from you, behind us, there is an everlasting without a beginning. You can't comprehend that. There is ahead of us an everlasting without an end. You can't comprehend that. But the Bible says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I'm afraid that we have lost the awesomeness of that word God and eternity. God asked Israel back there, under whom then would you liken me? Who do you think I'm like? You talk to the average man on the street. Who do you think God is like? Well, he told them what they thought he was like. They tried to make images and worship. But he said, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. And now, the God of the Bible is an absolute, self-existent, eternal being whose very name is holy. And the Bible says of him that he is holy in all his works. He is subject to no law, but the law of his own being, but the maker of all law. We cannot comprehend that. Here's a being self-existent. 
isn't dependent upon you or anyone or anything. Within himself, the self-existent eternal one. Because he is this, he is not subject to law. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he did it voluntarily. He humbled himself to be made in the likeness of a man. And then, in the likeness of a man, he further humbled himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, he was not compelled to do that. He did it voluntarily. When Peter had swung his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest, Jesus said, put your sword up. I could presently call twelve legions of angels, and uh, they would take care of this matter. Now, he could do that as God, because he was not subject to anything down here. He had voluntarily brought himself down here on a mission, and he wouldn't call because he did not want and would not break his mission, his word. God cannot lie, but so far as his power is concerned, he was still in control uh, as the Son of God. Some things we're told about him. We're told that he is in the bosom of the Father, not was, but he is there. When he was right down here, he was in the bosom of the Father. And he declared, speaking to Nicodemus, No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man that is in heaven. He never laid aside his omnipresence, nor his omniscience, nor his omnipotence. He laid aside certain prerogatives, his will. He had a will of his own. It takes uh, at least three things. We normally say it takes three things to constitute a personality. And in the Godhead, the triune Godhead, there are three persons or personalities all wrapped up in the one God. And personality must have intellect, sensibility, and will. That he had a will of his own is very obvious, for he said, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. He had a will of his own, but he submitted that will to the will of the Father. And he didn't come to carry out his own will, but the will of the triune God by carrying out the will of the Father. Now, his uh, sensibilities would include such things as his emotions. In fact, sometimes in defining personality, they say intellect, emotions, and will. But he had certain feelings that were his own. And he did not lay those aside, but his will was the controlling factor in the personality. And 
when he was in the garden, his emotions asserted themselves, and he said, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. But immediately said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. If this is the way that is in thy will, if this is what it means for me to carry out thy will, I want to do that. I came for that purpose. I came to do that very thing. And in doing that, he laid his own will aside. He laid aside the glory that he had with the Father, that eternal glory. In the glory of the Father, he was spoken of as the, uh, uh, what do I want to say, a prince of glory. He, that uh, Peter said, they would not have killed the prince of glory. He was the king of glory. Open up the gates and the king of glory will come in. He was the prince of glory, the king of glory. But he laid that glory aside to become a man and live among men. But he knew where he came from. There's a lot of oh, speculating. I do not know. I don't know how, how to say a lot of thinking. I don't know about that, but... There's been a lot of speculation as to when Jesus became aware of his Godhead. The mystery of the Incarnation I have no way of solving. But I am dead sure in my own being that he never laid aside the deity that was a part of his essential being and knew from the very beginning who he was, where he came from, and why he came. For while he was here, in John 17, we had the record, he prayed, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Well, he, he had never lost that Something that made him aware, and I think maybe homesick at times. I don't know how he felt. I never would have any, uh, any way of knowing how he felt walking around among sinful men when he'd been accustomed to sitting at the head of holy angels who were willing to do his bidding at any moment. Come down here among men to be rejected and hated and finally crucified. We know so little about it, but all of this is wrapped up in the eternal purpose. And while I'm here, before I go back to begin to begin to begin, I've been intrigued at times, and of late quite a few times, with a statement you have in the book of Revelation. The city, and I believe God has built a city for pilgrims. You read that in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Abraham wandered up and down the land as a pilgrim and stranger. 
looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And he never found it. He died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen it afar off. He was persuaded of it, and he embraced it and confessed that he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. Peter said, as strangers and pilgrims on the earth abstain from fleshly lust that war against the soul. But Abraham, walking and looking for the city, died in faith, believing that it was out there. Well, I've been looking for it for 60 years now, and I believe it's out there. It was somewhere about 60 years ago, uh, this time of year, that uh, I was translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And I've been looking for the city. I wasn't aware of all I was looking for back there, but as I started the trail and began to look at the landmarks and the signs along the way, I found there was a city. It's out there somewhere, and in that city, we're told, it has no need of the sun. For the glory of God is the light of the city, and immediately it said, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Did you ever put those two statements together? The glory of God is the light of the city, and the Lamb is the light of the city. Well, it has been tantalizing me. Is the slain Lamb the crowning glory of the eternal God. The wonder of the ages, the wonder of eternity, and the light of the city, the slain lamb. You try to get into that, the matter of Jesus Christ being very God of very God, and very man of very man, <laughs> as God, he could not be tempted of evil, and he could not die. But when he took hold of a human nature to become identified with that human nature in time and then in eternity, he took every part of that nature. He began it where you began, as the seed of conception in a woman's womb. He didn't just suddenly appear as a man. He took hold of humanity. The Hebrew writer has it. He taketh not hold of the nature of angels, but of the seed of Abraham he layeth hold. That's the margin. He taketh hold, but... When I see the margin, I think of Jesus Christ as the second person of the Godhead in the bosom of the Father, stooping down to get hold of man redemptively. And he took not on him, pushed angels out of the way, and stooped down to take hold of the seed of Abraham. And having laid hold of 
taken upon him the very nature of man, he was able to reach all men everywhere. Because from one blood he hath made, God hath made all nations of men for to dwell upon the face of all the earth. Now maybe you don't think that's true. You might be of the opinion of a German soldier who was dying unless he could have a transfusion of blood. And when they were getting ready to put blood, he said, What kind of blood is that? English blood? And they said, Yes. He said, Let me die. Well, the fact is, the blood is one blood. Whether it's the blood of a black man or a red man or a yellow man or a white man, and I don't, there aren't any white men, I guess. We're kind of a sickly gray, if you want to get our color. But we call ourselves the white race. I've seen some of them that would pass very well for black men even. They have their shirt off and have been in the sun so long that you couldn't tell what color they are. See them out in the bush, you might want to shoot them for something. But one blood, and because of that one blood, he could take hold of the human family, and the book says because the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same, stooped to take on our very nature. <coughs> How the infinite God could limit himself. On this side of his nature, the human side could learn like any boy, if that boy had never been tainted with sin, but he had to learn like a normal child that had no sin. But on the other side, he knew everything. He was God. You can't fathom that, nor can I, but certainly he was very God of very God and very man of very man. Now, as this he has come to redeem, he's taking hold of the human family by taking hold of the one blood. Uh, there are some items here, a couple of things I may come back to. Old Dr. Huffman used to have a formula we would be discussing sometimes some of the issues that are involved in redemption. And I would bring up certain things. The other men had brought them up to me, and I didn't agree with them. I laid them at times in our discussion. One of them was to try to categorize the infinite. That was the way Dr. Hoffman put it. One man, a professor in a college, said to me, God could sin if he wanted to, he just doesn't want to. My reaction to that <coughs> was, man, my whole soul revolts against that. I couldn't tell you <coughs> how I felt 
Here's a man with a BD, Bachelor of Divinity, telling me that God could sin if he wanted to. My whole soul revolts against that. Revolts against it. Oh, he said, mine doesn't. It makes it the more wonderful. He doesn't want to. Well, I said, suppose he should change his mind and want to. Then where are we? Well, he was hilarious and went down the lower floor from the foyer, left me standing with a couple of young men that he'd been teaching in class. That man had forgotten that the God we worship is immutable. The immutable God. He was teaching psychology. And you have to have freedom in order to have sin. An animal may be vicious, but he isn't wicked. A man may be vicious, but he's wicked when he is. Because he is capable of deciding whether he wants to be good or wants to be bad. He isn't capable of changing his nature, but he can make some decision by the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to be good. When you make that decision, brother, from your heart, God will let all heaven come on your side to help you. You will not be able to do it. Can the Ethiopian change his spot? Or can the leopard change his spot? Or the Ethiopian his skin? No more can you who are accustomed to doing evil, do good. But if you want to have it changed, God will send the resources of heaven to your help to change you into what he wants you to be. But you're going to have to want it, and want it badly. But Dr. Huffman, I went to Dr. Huffman over that matter. I said, this man said God could sin if he wanted to. He thought I was talking about the impeccability of Christ. Well, I believe that too. <clears throat> but uh, I said, no, deity itself. The deity itself. Dr. Huffman said, when we try to categorize the infinite, we've undertaken too big a task. That's a good formula. I agree to that. Cannot categorize the infinite. Only the infinite can comprehend the infinite. All we know about God is what He's pleased to reveal to us and put within our grasp. He has to put it down pretty low for me to get hold of it, but He puts it where I can get hold of some things anyway. I agree to that, God. <clears throat> is the infinite one, and when we try to categorize him, we've undertaken too big a task. I'm glad to be a worshiper, just a worshiper of the God I cannot comprehend. If I could comprehend God, I would be greater than he. I'd become the greater and he the lesser. Well, another formula is both of these are borrowed, that's from Dr. Huffman. 
This one I am not quite sure, but I think from B.H. Shattuck. He tells us that God... Let me tell you, if I pick it up now, it's around what I've been saying. God is the self-existent one. <clears throat> that uh, God is not subject to any law, but the author of all law. Uh, that, no, I have it now. That the laws of nature are God's habitual way of doing things. A miracle is God's freedom from bondage to habit. He is not enmeshed in a set of laws that he himself has made. Did you get that? The laws of nature are God's habitual way of doing things. A miracle is God's freedom from bondage to law or bondage to habit. God isn't tied up to habits. He has, there's a habitual way that he follows in dealing with, with nature, but he isn't in bondage to that. If he wants to stop the sun over there and the moon over there, he can do it. <laughs> you say, I don't, well, but astronomers will tell you that they're mystified by the fact that somewhere in the past, the calendar of time has lost today. Lost a whole day, but... The sun stood still in Joshua's day for about a whole day. But if God wants to do more than that and just push it back, as in the days of Hezekiah, shall the shadow go down 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? And old Ahaz said wouldn't be anything for it to go down 10 you set it back, and God moved it back ten degrees. Now, he wasn't in bondage to habit. He is bigger than the laws that he made. He can stop them, he can change them, he can reverse them. He isn't in bondage to habit. That's the God I worship. Hmm. Now he had an eternal purpose. He isn't lost in that purpose. But that purpose is going to be carried out. Everything was created by him and for him. Colossians tells us that in the first chapter, along about 15th, 16th verse. All things were created by him and for him. And in his sovereignty, the sovereign God created a race of beings that could obey him. They didn't have to. 
If he'd wanted more beings that would have to, like animals, move by instinct, he could have had that. But he created a race of beings <coughs> that could if they wanted to, or could rebel if they wanted to. But they could never interfere with the program he laid out. The eternal purpose is going to be carried out. I've often tried to illustrate it a little by arches, a big arch over all the sovereign will of God. And underneath that sovereign will, the eternal purpose. And then another arch somewhere much smaller because this arch is the time world as we know it. And that's lost in the great big arch of eternity. And that arch would cover the whole human family. And in it we have the redemptive will of God. God wants that every man should be redeemed. They don't have to be if they don't want to. They're free moral agents. You're not a free agent, mind you. You're a free moral agent. If you were a free agent, you could fly like a bird, swim like a fish. Gravity wouldn't have any hold on you. You could sail out to other planets, but you're a free moral agent. You can choose whether you want to be good or want to be bad. And yet, we're here on probation. I told you about 60 years ago now, right around this tiny year, I didn't know you were supposed to look at the clock and see what minute and what hour and so on, because I wasn't saved out in meeting. I was saved in my own home. But I tell you, I know what I went through, in part at least, and I know when I came out of that, I came out yielded to the will of God. I recall the statement, O oh Lord, if you will help me, I'll do anything in the world you want me to do. I little dreamed what was involved in that, but I've been trying to do that from then till now. <clears throat> but whether I would have yielded to God or rebelled, the purpose would have gone right on. I wouldn't have stopped God's purpose. <clears throat> Within that big arch, the whole human family, there's a little arch, smaller, yet. And in that arch are the redeemed, <clears throat> those who have come out of sin and yielded to the God of heaven. And they're under the covering of the covenant blood, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's outside here, within this other arch, the Holy Ghost is at work. And if there's anybody here this morning, and you have never been born of God, never been born again, the Holy Ghost is dealing with you, or has been, or will be, 
to try to draw you from that free moral agency outside in. You don't lose your free moral agency, but you come within the arch of redemption because you want to. You want to take refuge under the blood, the blood covering. The Holy Ghost is working out there. I don't know how to pray as I ought. I'm inside this inner arch. I don't know what to pray for as I ought. But I want to know what Jude said, praying in the Holy Ghost. I want to keep myself in the love of God, but I want to pray in the Holy Ghost. He's out there working. Why? Because God doesn't want any man to be lost. You have your statement specifically given in Second Peter. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He said that. But he said more than that in Timothy, he said, ah, God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't understand how in the light of even those two statements, Anybody could say that God had predestined certain men and angels to be damned. I can't understand that. I know what they've said. I may not be able to quote it to you, but it runs right along that line. For the glory of God, he has predestinated certain men and angels to be saved and then certain men and angels to be damned, one for the glory of his grace and the other the glory of his justice. Now, God did not predestinate any man to be damned for the glory of his justice, but I declare that God will be glorified when men are damned because his justice is as holy as his love. When God is compelled in his holiness to close in in judgment with men and say to this man, depart from me, ye wicked, it will be as much an expression of the holiness of God as it is when he said, come ye blessed, enter in. It's holiness speaking. In both cases. Now the eternal purpose was involved in it. The creation of men. And as we examine the Old Testament. And we're in a day now. When there are many people. Who do not want anything to do with the Old Testament and the law. <clears throat> but would you note this and remember it? All the Bible the early church had was the Old Testament. They didn't have any New Testament. They produced it, but they didn't have it. All the scriptures that Jesus had was the Old Testament. All the scripture that Paul had was the Old Testament. The scripture that Apollos was mighty in 
was the Old Testament. And if you can't preach Christ, if you can't preach grace out of the Old Testament, you're the grace you preach out of the New isn't what man needs. Go back with me. You will find this in Exodus chapter 33. 32 of Exodus, Moses had come down from the mountain, and he found the golden calf in camp. He rebuked Aaron, he destroyed the calf, ground it to powder, made the people drink of the water of the river into which he had thrown it. Then in chapter 33 of Exodus, God is telling Moses, I want you to lead this people on to the land of promise. Poor old Moses, been gone 40 days, and here they were in idolatry. Moses demurred. He said, I'm not able. Who is going with me? God said to Moses, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Then listen, Moses said, If thy presence go not with us, lead us not up hence, for wherein shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not in that thou goest with us, and so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all people upon the face of the earth? Isn't it a fact that separating grace was back there? And if there's anything grace will do for you, it will separate you from the world. With all of its follies and foibles, it will separate you. That's all. God didn't give me a set of rules. I didn't know enough, to, I guess, to imbibe them, but he put something in my heart. And it wasn't rules. But it ruled me, and it brought about a separation from the old life, until I discovered if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, and it's been a happy walk. I don't mean by that there haven't been problems. Problems in any life. I haven't ridden on cloud seven all the way through. No, there have been some deep valleys. But his presence was with me. And that's the thing that makes the difference. If thy presence go not with us, that'll make the difference. Lead us not up hence. Never has there been the lack of that presence. There have been times when, as the poet puts it, when darkness veiled his lovely face, and the revisers have said, when darkness seems to veil his face. Well, that isn't the kind of darkness I went into. It, 
veiled his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, didn't just seem to, <clears throat> he then was all my strength and state. But it's in those hours that you prove the faithfulness of the God to whom you've committed yourself. Oh, I thank God for the Old Testament scripture. And that's what Paul was referring to when he said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. There was no New Testament yet. What he wrote became a part of the New Testament, but what he was telling Timothy that all that Old Testament is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction. But you try to reprove somebody now on the basis of what the Old Testament they may snub you, not if they know the Lord they want. That's all the early church had. That's all the scripture Jesus used, all he had to use, all the apostles used, the Old Testament. But we're in a day when they're wanting to push that aside. But I would ask that individual to read Romans 15:4, as well as that statement, Second Timothy, is it uh, 3:16? Wherever it is, there you will find it all. Scripture, <clears throat> my mind isn't working as clearly, but go back to Romans 15:4. Whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, I'll make a few remarks about that Old Testament in a general way. There are parts of the Old Testament that are historical, <clears throat> mingled with prophecy and uh, promise. <clears throat> there are parts of it, particularly when God was leading Israel out of the land of Egypt that were designed for that particular nation. <clears throat> but you wouldn't have to have a magnifying glass or spyglass if you're reading it thoughtfully and carefully. When you read such a passage as, When thou comest into the land, you would understand, or I think you should, that that isn't now, but you're going to come into the land one day, and this is the rule, when thou comest into the land. Part of their civil law. You would understand, I suppose, that when he's telling them some things that are for sanitary purposes, here you have a camp of approximately three million people, <clears throat> And I don't think we, the average person, I, as I seem to see it, doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to stop to think what kind of a camp that would be, three million people, 
without any buildings, all living in tents. Why, uh, I don't, you don't have a city in Ohio that would come up there. I don't know what Cincinnati is, but Cincinnati wouldn't reach three million. <clears throat> Take your city of Columbus. <clears throat> See a farm spread out. How many people are there? Less than a million, I would guess. I've asked students before now, how many cities the size of this one that we might be in would it take to accommodate the camp of Israel? You'd be surprised uh, to see how they begin to look and figure. <clears throat> they had a little, like it might be like this tabernacle, and Moses stand up here and yell, and they could all hear him. No. <clears throat> it's estimated that the camp of Israel covered at least 144 square miles. At least that. Four townships like we have in Michigan, 12 miles square. <clears throat> 12 miles this way, 12 miles. A minimum of that. <clears throat> the camp of Israel living in tents. He had certain laws, how they were to conduct themselves in that camp for sanitary reasons. Well, it seems to me that a fellow reading that would understand that when they'd gotten into the land and scattered out and built permanent homes, they wouldn't have to obey those laws anymore. But there were laws for their living in that camp. And when you uh, wanted to come, they had to come to the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp. And they, out yonder, they send eight, ten miles away. Have to bring a goat or a sheep or a bullock, some kind to the tabernacle because they'd sin. Was expensive business then. You didn't bring the scrubs, you brought the best bullock you had. And you came right out in open daylight. People said, I'd be a Christian if I could be that secretly. Well, boy, they weren't secret about it. They come right down through camp, leading that old bullock, and I don't know whether they were as hard to lead back there as some of them are now. I know I've tried to lead some, and they were in the lead most of the time. And then when I had to get a loop around their lower jaw with a rope, I was sometimes able to hold them here and bring them back. It would be a task to get that bullock down there, six, eight miles. Everybody he went by, every tent he went by would look him over. He's been sinning again, that man Brown. I saw him go by this morning. I suppose women were as curious and as talkative then as now. Saw that fellow going by. He must have been sinning again. Well, it wasn't done under cover of darkness. It was done in broad daylight. God was trying to teach us something. We're not to light a candle and put it under a bushel. Put it on the candlestick. <clears throat> now those laws that were to be blotted out, the handwriting of ordinances that were against us were to be blotted out. You don't have to bring that bullock this morning you don't have to come with that goat or that sheep. The Lamb of God, 
has appeared to take away the sin of the world. And back there in the tabernacle, there was no place for a priest to sit down. He could, he could serve in the tabernacle from the time he was 30 years old until he was 50. And there was a lot of butchering, a lot of slaughtering of animals, a lot of heavy work involved. But there was no chair, no stool, no place to sit down. But you read about this man, but this man, said the Hebrew writer, when he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ gathered up all of those sacrifices that were against us, buried them in his own bosom, offered himself without spot to God, and every sacrifice that was back there was done away with. I think we would understand that, would we not? But the commandments are still true. You say we don't have, we're not, which one do you have a right to break? Can you lie? Can you commit adultery? Can you steal? Which commandment do you have a right to break? Not one of them. Not one of them. But you keep them because you love God, and not because there's a heavy hand over you. And if in any area I should find myself failing on any one of them, it would put grief in my heart. I want God to help me to be the kind of a man that I ought to be just because I love him. Father, we ask thy blessing upon our effort this morning. Thou will give us direction for the future. Day by day we may be led of thy spirit into the truth thou dost want us to give this people in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the